Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Johnny Carson, the king of comedy. Now let's continue with our story about Johnny Carson. Unfortunately, behind the scenes, despite his ascent as a major figure in the entertainment industry, Johnny's professional and personal life became dramatically more dysfunctional. Although economically beneficial, he conducted a bitter, protracted holdout with the network and demanded and got more control over the program and a raise commensurate with the show's profitability, which the network was forced to reveal for the first time. Once he got greater control, Carson immediately fired his longtime producer, Art Stark, with absolutely no notice. Stark, who considered himself a close friend, never heard from Carson again. Al Bruno, Carson's longtime manager, also was canned, ostensibly because of problems from a hotel appearance in Miami Beach when sound equipment malfunctioned during Johnny's stand-up routine but most likely connected to Bruno, signing another talk show host, Mike Douglas, as his client. For Carson, the ultimate act of disloyalty. Johnny's blatant philandering had also gotten so problematic that Joanne Carson, most likely out of revenge and to generate jealousy and get attention, began to also not so discreetly conduct her own extramarital relationships. It was to investigate exactly with who and where Joanne Carson was conducting these liaisons that Johnny assembled a team of private investigators, ex-cops, and even an attorney to conduct a clandestine search of what he believed was a secret apartment that his wife was using to meet with her lover. Knowing that Joanne was out of town, Carson and his team bribed the building night manager who literally let them into the apartment. There, based on furniture from Carson's U.N. Plaza apartment, men's clothing, and a bathrobe in a closet, it was clear that both Joanne and a male were frequenting the location. It didn't take long to confirm exactly who this male, already suspected by Carson, was. Several framed pictures on the walls featured Joanne with none other than Frank Gifford, former New York Giants football player and Monday Night Football announcer. Strangely, despite his own constant infidelity and frequently nasty attitude with his wife, Johnny Carson actually broke down sobbing when confronted with the confirmation of his wife's adultery. Some items of clothing were removed and photographs were taken, insurance in the event that the inevitable divorce negotiations centered around Johnny's infidelity. It was this caper that was the launching pad for an 18-year business relationship that Carson maintained with the man who became first his attorney and then main business advisor, Henry Bushkin. Carson seems to have grown tired of the high-priced top-echelon Manhattan law firms he formerly employed on his behalf. 
Bushkin was an obscure 27-year-old working for a mid-level New York law firm and a friend of a former cop and fixer that suggested him to Carson as someone who was smart and streetwise, but not some extremely expensive member of a monolithic white-shoe firm. So mistrustful of any of his current business associates, quickly Johnny decided that Bushkin should handle his divorce, and to that end, most likely figuring that the best defense was a good offense, Carson proactively filed and locked Joanne out of the U.N. Plaza apartment. She eventually wound up temporarily couch surfing with some of her celebrity friends, but most were wary of having anything to do with her, understanding that this could jeopardize any future relationship with Carson. It would take two years for the two to agree on financial terms. Carson paid a lump sum of $160,000, $100,000 for 1972, and $75,000 a year until Joanne remarried or cohabited for more than six months. Had it not been for the investigation of Joanne's secret apartment and Bushkin's subsequent hardball settlement negotiation, this amount would have undoubtedly been much higher. Carson then had his new attorney examine several of the star's business relationships, especially scrutinizing the role of Johnny's current business manager, Sonny Werblin, a former MCA agent, managing general partner of the New York Jets football team and high-level dealmaker. Bushkin quickly uncovered sweetheart deals with Johnny's wardrobe line, Hart Shafter and Marks, and office space and large salaries charged to Carson's production company for virtually little involvement of any current value. In exchange for Werblin quietly opting out, Carson agreed not to file suit, and suddenly Henry Bushkin was thrust into the role of Johnny's go-between with the universe. On May 1, 1972, Johnny Carson got a divorce of a very different kind from the city of New York. Although he spent several weeks every year producing shows from Los Angeles, Carson always maintained that he preferred living in New York and that he would never leave the East Coast. His explanation for finally making the move was that increasingly most of the celebrities that were the life's blood of his show were based in L.A. and that live television was shrinking in New York City. Another was the latest producer of the show, Freddie DeCordova, an old guard Hollywood industry regular who directed close to two dozen Hollywood films, the most prominent probably Ronald Reagan's Bedtime for Bonzo. DeCordova, through his longtime producing connection to Jack Benny, was both an industry social and professional A-lister who could easily navigate the Southern California talent pool and help attract the hottest and most prominent celebrities publicly celebrating his 10th anniversary of the show at the Beverly Hills Hotel, Carson dropped the bombshell that earlier in the day he had married his significant other, Joanna, his third marriage. His lawyer Bushkin was also taken aback, especially after Johnny tore up the prenuptial agreement, stating that this was no way to begin a marriage. His attorney had him sign a legal document indemnifying Bushkin in the event that the marriage ended in divorce. Joanna Carson was a former fashion model who had spent much of her life in the rarefied company of extremely wealthy, sophisticated, older men. Her companion before Johnny was the CEO and chairman of the Hertz Renicar Corporation. Johnny, still essentially a scotch-drinking, steak-and-potatoes Midwesterner, began to acquire a more diverse outlook, courtesy of his latest wife. Completely uninterested up to that point in travel, 
He began his annual pilgrimage to the Wimbledon Tennis Championships, featured prominently on the NBC broadcast to the U.S. He typically followed that up with several weeks on the Cap d'Antibes along the French Riviera, enjoying the fact that he went mostly unrecognized. Instead of hard liquor, he began to temper his alcohol intake with a fine Bordeaux or Montrachet. But one constant, despite a well-appointed Bel Air resident on Saint-Claude Road, the Carsons never threw parties and were rarely seen socially, their house again a secluded refuge to escape from public exposure. Another long-term Carson irritation precipitated the creation of one of America's most recent popular television phenomena, NBC, despite dreadful ratings, insisted for years in running a Carson rerun in the 11.30 slot on Saturday night. Half of the affiliates refused to even carry the shows, the ratings so bad that the network resorted to giving away advertising time. Flexing his ever-increasing power over the network, Johnny insisted that NBC stop running reruns on Saturday night. But when he heard the two up-and-coming network employees, Dick Ebersole, then head of NBC's late-night programming, and Lorne Michaels, the producer of the as-yet-undetermined program that would fill Johnny's weekend spot, were planning some kind of variety show, he insisted on meeting with both men personally. He was determined to make sure that what they had planned was not a talk show and that they especially only intended to appear once a week. Despite his remarkable reign and power at the network, Carson did not want to accidentally create what might be a successor to his own program. In 1975, when Saturday Night Live became wildly successful and the toast of the industry, Carson was not at all complimentary, publicly disapproving of the humor, which he termed sophomoric and cruel. Perhaps his attitude was shaped by the media sensation created by Chevy Chase, the initial star of the show, who repeatedly rejected any potential aspirations of someday replacing Johnny and denigrated The Tonight Show as a tired product of the conventional television establishment. It was not an accident that The Tonight Show did nothing to promote the program. By the time stars from Saturday Night like Bill Murray and Eddie Murphy appeared with Johnny, they were already making Hollywood films and had outgrown Saturday Night Live. It would be 11 years before Chevy Chase guest-hosted for Carson in 1986, by then a much less brash, rehabbed version of his former self. As the 70s concluded, another long-term internal struggle underlined that perhaps even Johnny himself was tired after years of his successful but predictable grind. The network had given him several contract renewals, making him the highest-paid performer on television, but as his latest contract dwindled down, there were ominous signs that Johnny was about to completely sever another long-term relationship. Surreptitiously, ABC, who could have been sued if they courted John publicly, got word through Henry Bushkin that Johnny could name his price and his terms to switch networks. In an attempt to get Johnny out of his contract, Bushkin explained to NBC that their current Carson contract was illegal under California law, which forbade an agreement lasting more than seven years. NBC insisted that their agreements consisted of renewals, not one extended time period, but the matter wound up in legal arbitration, which NBC lost. Not only was this another maneuver that strengthened Henry Bushkin's formidable reputation, it also allowed Johnny to negotiate openly with any other network. 
By this time, NBC was no longer the top dog in TV's ratings wars. In fact, it was losing altitude and profits disastrously. So much so that in what smelled of desperation, the network hired as its president, Fred Silverman, an industry big shot who was known as the programming wizard responsible for the ascension of ABC television, the perennial rating cellar dweller. By the time Silverman arrived, The Tonight Show was one of the few bright spots NBC had. It did not take a genius to figure out that getting Johnny to ramp up from his three- and four-day-a-week schedule, even temporarily, would be helpful to the bottom line. But rather than attempting to quietly and privately broach the topic to Carson discreetly, the network president put the talk show host on public blast, saying, I hope that there will become a moment in time when he will say to himself, I love the show, and I'm going to do a little bit more. He's a very professional and competitive guy. I don't think he must enjoy reading that the thing is slipping. If Silverman thought confronting Johnny publicly and even implying that his show was somehow deficient were effective negotiating tools, he was sorely mistaken. Having never formally even met Carson as network president, Silverman did so on March 17, 1979. Carson not only refused to work additional hours, he also told Silverman that he wanted off the show as soon as possible. Although Silverman did remind him at this meeting that he had a contract through 1981, Carson publicly announced that he would be leaving the show on September 30, 1979, the 17th anniversary of the program. Whether this was his actual intent, a negotiating ploy, or merely a gesture designed to put an arrogant, egotistical network executive in his place, the negotiations dragged on into May of 1980. When they concluded, Johnny Carson had extracted the most favorable contract in the history of network television. His show would be reduced from 90 minutes to 60 minutes, four nights a week, with a salary of $5 million a year. Not only the producer of the program, Carson and his production company were now the owners of his show, which presented him with all sorts of lucrative syndication possibilities to sell reruns. The network also agreed to buy three series and three made-for-TV movies from Carson's production company, despite the fact that this entity had never produced material, essentially guaranteed income, even if the shows flopped. Any hits would generate even more massive sums with the production company owning the material. In total, the entire package was a $50 million commitment. Johnny Carson now as much a corporation as well as a performer. As payment, Henry Bushkin received 10% of the stock in the new production company. To fill the gap left by Carson's 30-minute program cut, Silverman envisioned an hour-long talk show and believed Steve Allen to be the perfect replacement for just such a show. Carson was lukewarm and was greatly responsible for the choice of a comedian he favored instead, David Letterman. This program would also be owned by Carson Productions. Shoring up The Tonight Show as a network staple did little to help Fred Silverman, who was fired on June 30, 1981, after such programming disasters as Super Train, and the McLean-Stevenson vehicle Hello Larry, bombs that Carson delighted in poking fun at during his monologues, this humiliation occurring on Silverman's own network. Formerly a reserved behind-the-scenes type of hired hand, Henry Bushkin began to morph into something completely different, 
especially after the remarkable upgrade of Johnny Carson's contract and entertainment business stature. No longer was the attorney completely focused on protecting Carson's business interests to the exclusion of other opportunities. Instead, he began to assemble deals that involved Carson and frequently invoked the entertainer's name in lining up other celebrity or even civilian investors to participate in various investment opportunities. Purchasing a Las Vegas television station, buying undeveloped land in Houston with an intention to build a luxury hotel, buying another New Mexico television station, even a bank in which Carson was not only the major investor, but also on the hook for the biggest liability. Someone with Carson's income should have focused mostly on conservative financial instruments like government bonds and blue-chip stocks instead of such speculative situations. The most high-profile example of this type of pursuit was the much-publicized attempt by Carson to buy the Aladdin Hotel, which was depicted in media as a feud between him and Vegas fixture Wayne Newton. Although Newton emerged as the owner of the property, Bushkin's version claims Johnny really had very little skin in the game and was going to be essentially given 20% of the hotel by the main investor, the Kinney Corporation, in exchange for Carson becoming a frequent performer and spokesman. When some due diligence turned up law enforcement officials who quietly advised Bushkin and Johnny that Kinney had some not-so-savory characters behind it, they nixed the deal typically not happy with what he perceived as hostility from the Las Vegas business and media community, Carson never performed in the city again, and eventually he and his partners sold his very profitable television station. In all of these deals, Henry Bushkin made sure to include himself in the equity portion at very little risk to himself, became a very wealthy man, and as long as he was Johnny Carson's chief advisor and business conduit, a formidable Los Angeles business presence the personification of the Tonight Show character, now known nationwide through Johnny's monologue as Bombastic Bushkin. Like the impending appearance of some predictable celestial comet, speculation about the health of Carson's marriage began to pick up momentum in the early 80s. It was only two years after the couple tied the knot that Johnny temporarily moved out. After 11 years, Joanna citing irreconcilable differences and surprise adultery, sued Johnny for divorce. She received $44,1984 a month in temporary support until a final settlement could be reached, undoubtedly a process that would be difficult and protracted. By the time the smoke cleared, although it was for a reported total of $20 million, Henry Bushkin estimated that with the Bel Air House, artwork, Hotel Pierre apartment, automobiles, stocks, and alimony of 35000 a month for 64 months, the settlement was closer to $35 million. Carson at least got some mileage on his program from the incident, joking at the time, I heard from my cat's lawyer today. My cat wants $12,000 a week for tender vittles. But it was hard to feel sorry for Carson, whose womanizing was so blatant that when Joanna convened a meeting in her home, of the Women's Beverly Hills charity that she participated in, Johnny would single out at least one of the participants and strongly proposition them. Upon signing the divorce papers, Johnny turned to his now ex-wife and said, What I'll miss most is not being able to talk to you. Carson certainly made good on his word, never speaking with Joanna Carson again.
Another perhaps related somber milestone also passed on October 13, 1985. Ruth Carson, Johnny's mother, passed away in the Paradise Valley, Arizona home that Johnny purchased for her and her already deceased husband, who died in 1983. Although her son took good care of his mother in her final years, providing 24-hour nursing care for her in her last months, he rarely visited or interacted with her. Throughout his career, his mother not only withheld her praise and approval, she seemed to go out of her way to figure out how to minimize his remarkable success. Once, when a reporter got the bright idea to sit with Ruth Carson during The Tonight Show to get her in-person critique, she walked out of the living room during the commercial break following the monologue with the casual aside, that wasn't very funny, a comment that was reported in a national magazine. Carson once sent his parents on an expensive 47-day round-the-world anniversary cruise. His bon voyage was an American Express card he gave to his father, urging him to use it for anything they needed. He presumed he would get some excited updates along the way, but his parents never called and did not so much as send a postcard. Knowing exactly when they were due back in Arizona, Johnny waited for a few days and then called his parents. When his father picked up the phone and Carson asked if he had enjoyed the trip, Homer merely said he would put Ruth on the phone. His mother's only comment was, Well, son, we're really happy to be home. Ruth Carson's interaction with her son seemed fundamentally focused on repeatedly sending the message that she wasn't impressed by him or anything he did. After a lifetime of this type of abusive and painful interaction, it was not surprising that Johnny Carson did not attend either of his parents' funerals. It was at his father's bedside when his father succumbed, but Johnny left before the memorial service. He was not present when his mother passed away in 1985. However, when he went through his mother's possessions after her death, he found a detailed scrapbook filled with articles about his career, dating back to his earliest days in Nebraska. He kept this artifact for the rest of his life. Familial dysfunction also permeated Carson's relationship with all three of his sons. As they became adults, he made it clear that while he would give them modest amounts of financial support, this was merely enough to pay bills and by no means the type of trust funds typical of the children of extreme wealth. Once a year throughout the 70s, all three sons would receive one check in the neighborhood of twelve dollars to $15,000 a year. While son Chris did graduate from the University of Miami, the fable that he was pursuing a career as a golf pro in Fort Lauderdale was an invention of publicists, Chris's career consisting of administering an occasional paid golf lesson. He lived in South Florida and stayed out of the limelight. Carson's other two sons never graduated from college and well into their 30s were employed by Carson Productions. Rick is a stage manager for one of the company's sitcoms, and Corey literally a gopher for The Tonight Show. Although Rick Carson did show some professional initiative, his constant substance abuse issues made him a problematic employee who would have been fired in any normal business circumstance. Corey focused mainly on music, practicing on his guitar, occasionally lining up some modest gigs, but without any real professional goals in mind. Johnny's parental heartbreak became a national news story when his son Christopher fathered a biracial child out of wedlock with a resident of a rat-infested trailer park. 
Johnny found out about the situation during the pregnancy and urged his son to cease any contact with the woman or eventually the child under pain of being cut off financially. His son, Corey, was also involved in the birth of an illegitimate child, which was not as sensational. This dysfunction turned utterly tragic when on June 24, 1991, Richard Wolcott Carson was killed when he accidentally drove off a service road embankment of the Pacific Coast Highway near Cayucos, California. Camera equipment found near the scene of the accident indicated that the younger Carson was probably distracted while taking photographs. Johnny Carson took a brief hiatus but ultimately returned to work in July. On his first day back, he closed the show by unexpectedly discussing the death of his son in a heartfelt way that was very uncharacteristic, a father clearly moved by the death of one of his children. During this delivery, beautiful photographs of natural settings, sunsets, and animals were shown sequentially, Johnny explaining that his son had a great interest in photography and that these were some of his photographs. Truly beautiful and professional, it was a thoughtful and poignant goodbye. But viewers were not aware that this segment precipitated an ugly incident that managed to permanently damage Carson's relationship with his longtime executive producer, Freddie DeCordova, an integral part of the program for over 20 years. It turns out that during Carson's tribute to his son, DeCordova began making the cut sign across his throat, attempting to make the host aware that the show was running over, normally a major network no-no, but... In these unique circumstances, only the most heartless affiliate would have preempted or gotten upset over such moving television. Carson was livid and told Freddie he was immediately removed from his prominent onstage production vantage point, replaced by another senior producer. For the last year of The Tonight Show, DeCordova remained permanently relegated to the doghouse. By then, the bombastic Bushkin had also been reduced to non-person status. In his tell-all memoir, written in 2014, Henry Bushkin claimed that this was all due to a specific misunderstanding over the possible sale of Carson Productions without the involvement of Johnny Carson in the specific details. Johnny was told by another business advisor that Bushkin was attempting to enrich himself at Johnny's expense, and in a very brief, intense exchange, lasting only a few minutes, Carson fired his advisor of 18 years and negotiated his severance package. This ensured that the two men did not have to interact again, and they did not, with not so much as a phone call, for the rest of Johnny's life. This, the man that Johnny Carson once described as his best friend. In truth, Henry Bushkin had been on the way out for a long time. Land deals in Texas, TV stations in New Mexico, and the acquisition of a bank which wound up in a quagmire of litigation, even whispers of mob involvement, were just some of the disastrous ventures that bombastic Bushkin engineered and eventually led to Carson finally taking the longtime advice of many associates who told him to cut his longtime advisor loose. Joan Rivers also was exiled when, in 1987, she accepted an offer from Fox Television to host a late-night talk show that would compete with Johnny. Rivers was already frustrated by NBC's refusal to both offer her a contract as Johnny's replacement host, and especially that she was not on an NBC list of stars to even be considered when and if Johnny retired. 
Although other hosts and comedians attempted to compete with Johnny and still remained in Carson's good graces, most notably Joey Bishop, Joan Rivers made the unforgivable sin of negotiating with Fox, putting together her show, and never even telling Johnny about it in advance. Her 11th hour attempt to reach out to him on the eve of the program was rejected. Assistants told that he would not take her call at any time in the future. It became common knowledge that if you appeared on Joan's show, you were banned from The Tonight Show. The Fox effort predictably tanked in the ratings, and nine months later, after Rivers refused to fire, husband and longtime manager and producer of her talk show, Edgar Rosenberg, they both were fired. Rivers and her husband were devastated. Edgar Rosenberg committed suicide three months after Joan went off the air. Despite Carson's predilection towards deliberately inviting any host that was his former competition on his show after they were canceled, ranging from Joey Bishop to Alan Thicke, he not only never invited her back onto his show, she also was another individual who he never spoke with again. Although it was a shock, it wasn't exactly surprising when Johnny Carson announced at the end of 1991, when signing his annual one-year contract extension, that 1992 would be his last year hosting The Tonight Show. He noted that 30 years was a remarkable run on television and that he wanted to leave at the top of his game. Initially, he was scheduled to work through the summer, but moved up his last show to May 22, 1992. His penultimate show was the last to feature guests, in this case, Robin Williams and Bette Midler, who serenaded him with a final song, One for My Baby. His last show featured Carson by himself, acknowledging his staff, especially Ed McMahon and Doc Severinsen, some anecdotes and highlights of the previous 30 years, and the final sign-off. And so it has come to this. I am one of the lucky people of the world. I found something I've always wanted to do and I have enjoyed every single minute of it. I bid you a very heartfelt good night. And then he was gone, the end of a very American era. In a very public and nasty process, Jay Leno was named as Johnny's successor, despite Carson's very close relationship with one of the favorites for the position, David Letterman. This resulted in Letterman getting his own competing show on CBS. Despite numerous requests for appearances, interviews, and cameos, Johnny Carson only returned to television once for a brief appearance on The David Letterman Show. He did routinely fax Letterman gags and was gratified when the late-night show used some of his bits in his monologue. Following his retirement, Johnny Carson became even more reclusive, spending most of his time behind the gates of his massive Malibu mansion that overlooked Point Dume. He spent a great deal of time on his private tennis court, especially built for him by NBC, one of the few of its kind in the vicinity. His closest companion, his fourth wife, who he married in 1987, Alexis Moss, a stunning blue-eyed blonde he met while she was walking by his other Malibu beach house, which he eventually sold to John McEnroe. As the 20th century concluded, health issues stemming especially from a -a four-pack-a-day smoking habit forced him to undergo a triple bypass in 1999. Chronic emphysema required increasing dosages of steroids, which affected Carson's physical appearance, possibly the reason he ceased having the occasional dinner party. When Carson died on January 23, 2005, at Cedars-Sinai Hospital, many of his closest friends had not seen him in years. 
He spent his last days on a 130-foot triple-decker yacht, the Serengeti, his office literally on the boat, although he was occasionally sighted at seaside locations and marinas all over North America, Carson and presumably his wife spent most of their time on the water, completely out of the public eye. When he died, Carson left a large portion of his estate to his personal foundation, although his wife Alexis inherited his Malibu home and a considerable amount of wealth. Two years later, in 2007, she sold the mansion for $36.5 million. Johnny's sons are believed to still receive some kind of annual stipend, but a modest amount merely meant to allow them to live reasonably comfortably. Upon Carson's death, hundreds of the usual entertainment industry tributes poured in, mostly from people who did not know him well, but met him while appearing on The Tonight Show. Perhaps most apt, but left publicly unsaid at the time, was a comment by one of his closest associates. Nobody really knows Johnny. He's sealed as tight as an egg, and the shell is unbreakable. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Johnny Carson. Information for this program came from the books King of the Night by Lawrence Lemer and Johnny Carson by Henry Bushkin. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.